You're listening to Tone Benders, the sound designer's podcast. Let's do this. Hello and welcome to Tone Bender Sound Design Podcast, where we talk with the sonic artists behind our favorite films, series, and games. My name is Tim Muirhead and I will be your host for today. This episode is part of a new mini-series focused on sound for documentaries, and we're going to be talking about a really good one today, Fire of Love. It has just been released on Disney Plus after a successful theatrical run over the summer. The film follows a romantic relationship over multiple decades between two scientists that study volcanoes up close. Shockingly close sometimes. In many ways, the film is actually about a love triangle, because Maurice and Katia clearly love volcanoes as much as they love each other. Composed almost entirely of footage shot by the main characters over their globetrotting adventures in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, sometimes this film feels like a comedy, and at other times, it's a tragedy. A large percentage of the footage used in the film was shot without sound, leaving the audio post team a heavy workload. Joining us today are Patrice LeBlanc, sound designer on Fire of Love. It's great to meet you, Patrice. Welcome. Hi, thanks. Happy to be here. Awesome. We have a returning guest in Gavin Fernandez, who is the re-recording mixer on this film. Gavin was previously on our episode 98, talking about his work on the series Big Little Lies. Welcome back, Gavin. It's great to see you again. Good to see you again, too. This should be fun. And finally, we have Fire of Love's director, Sarah Dosa. It is always fantastic to have directors join these talks. Welcome, Sarah. It's great to meet you. Uh, Thank you so much. Really happy to be here. Awesome. So, Sarah, let's start with you. Uh, What were your hopes for the sound of this film, and how did you communicate that with the sound team when you first started talking with them? We had many hopes for for the sound of Fire of Love. Um, Namely, we really wanted the sound to bring up the character of volcanoes. Uh, As you mentioned in in your wonderful introduction for the film, uh, this isn't just a film about two humans in love with each other. It's a love triangle between two humans and this vast force, uh, this majestic power that are volcanoes. Um, It was essential for us that volcanoes felt alive, not necessarily anthropomorphized, but um, sentient. They had their own being in in a way. And uh, we thought that sound design could be a really powerful way to do that. Um, We were so lucky to work with Patrice LeBlanc and and Gavin Fernandez in this journey, uh, two masterful, you know, wizards (laughs) of sorts, who I really feel like were able to conjure that, that grandeur and that life force of volcanoes. Within the magnitude, though, we also wanted intimacy with our human characters to kind of place kind of the, the, the smallness of humans against this, this huge force. And so uh, getting to have such precision with things like Katya's footsteps on the lava or the way the tactile sounds of the animation that where you really feel like the paper and Katya and Maurice are inhabiting kind of the, this research world of books where they first fell in love. Um, it was really wonderful to kind of play with the delicacy of sound as well as the, the kind of magnitude of, of the volcanoes. We had a lot of evolving conversations. Uh, about this. Uh, luckily, you know, um, Patrice and, and Gavin are so creative and so open and so collaborative. So it was a really wonderful dialogue between us uh, and our two editors, Aaron Casper and Jocelyn Chaput, who, who did a tremendous amount of workload um, building some of the initial sounds early on in the edit. So Patrice, when you first get the film, you have the sounds that the editors have put in, I suppose, but I, I assume a lot of it was a, a blank canvas for you. How did you feel about that? I would say that the work that Jocelyn and Aaron did was uh, very thorough. The basic, more than the basic ideas were there, but the the, the quality of the sound wasn't optimal. So it was uh, the first thing that was important to me was to respect the work that was done by the, uh, the, the image editors. Because 
archival footage is kind of a different beast and uh, in the, this kind of movie in documentaries and i don't think that you can edit the film without sound so Aaron and uh, Jocelyn really had to do a, uh, a lot of work on on sound first my first job was to respect the work that they did and kind of enhance uh, the the ideas but there were a lot of things that were lacking like foley and uh, stereo ambiences and uh, differentiating the 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 different volcanoes to have a, a more um, realistic aspect to the the narrative so uh, that was the first uh, the first thing that came up i would say to add to uh, what sarah said uh, when we first meet up the the thing that struck me was uh, i asked her what film should i watch to be influenced or to uh, to 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 have a feeling for fire of love and uh, she talked about uh, Uh, Sweetgrass, the film um, by the um, Ethnosensory Lab, and and it's not a film about volcanoes; it's a film about uh, sheep. And there's a there's a kind of heightened reality, and that's the uh, main objective of the sound in Fire of Love. So that that was my both my anchors. So the work of uh, Erin and uh, and Jocelyn and uh, what. Uh, what we talk with Sarah. So heightened reality is kind of an interesting uh, statement because when we think of heightened reality, we think of, uh, you know, especially for a volcano movie, huge explosive volcanoes. Yeah. But there's something that kind of changes the reality of this film that's very different from a lot of other documentaries, and that's the narration. Uh, in in v most documentaries, the narrator is the voice of God that comes down and gives us the information we need. The narration in this film is soft. It's almost like it's being whispered in our ear at times. It's very delicate, and it's being juxtaposed with these huge mountains exploding fire out the top of them. Uh, Gavin, do you want to talk about how you tackle mixing a narration that is so soft and intimate and keep it Uh, like we're having that feeling of being spoken to individually, kind of. I mean, a lot of that is in the performance. It was a very intimate recording of a very intimate, uh, you know, uh, performance of, of, of the words. Because the words read by, you know, you get some famous actor to read it, would have been a regular IMAX movie or, a net, you know, a regular uh, Discovery Channel documentary where all of a sudden, you know, they're telling you and they're talking at you. And Miranda's read was very much talking with us and talking to us. And I think that's uh, that's how you get the emotion in there is that it becomes a first person experience as opposed to a, a third person spectator experience. So a lot of that, I, I can't take credit for that. Um, on a technical level, what, what, what happened was uh, it came from, Sarah, tell me if I'm wrong, five recordings? Yeah, about two and a half days um, of recording. Oh yeah, but then but then didn't we had we flew some stuff in and all, and so so the, there was yeah. and there and there were, there was variances over the the thing. So I think there was there was a fair amount of work in trying to sew it all together so it sounded homogenous. Well, the easiest part of that was that we sort of built most of the soundtrack, so then we could go back and attack just that and see where it stood out. And we ended up moving some stuff around or putting in, you know, like if we had two readings that were too far apart, you know, if we, it was it was the kind of film where it was easy enough to throw in an explosion here or there to, <laughs> to distract us from it. But uh, for, it was really their part. We've been talking about volcanoes. I think uh, the film's about volcanoes as much as it is about relationships. Uh, we got to talk about the sound of the volcanoes. So, uh, Patrice, 
how do you tackle volcanoes that, but it's not only that you're cutting volcanoes, you're cutting volcanoes that have to feel like they were recorded in the 70s. Yeah, we talked a lot about the 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 aspect of the the sound. How big did we want it to to be? And like most of the the sound that was already in, in the movie were was um, the the uh, TV interview. And these TV interviews are really rough, rough sounding, and even rougher sounding when uh, you you take into account that we had to. Uh, clean the music that was there and uh, stuff like that. So we didn't want to stray too much, too far away from that. But I don't think we, we wanted to, we wanted the sound to be too um, archival sounding for the, uh, so we wanted to be modern, but not, not like a full IMAX Atmos mix. So it's kind of an in-between, in-between an archive footage sound and uh, a more bombastic feeling. So, um, well, I, I, I didn't have like three months to uh, roam around the world to uh, do field recording around volcanoes. <laughs> Would have been fun, but it was not that kind of project. And uh, so I listened on the web, some really special people do field recording everywhere and I I set up on a couple of uh, volcanoes and different per perspectives I bought like I don't know seven banks of uh, active volcanoes and I worked around with uh, with these these sounds but I think the 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 aspect was more to uh, to start with the the more realistic sounding volcanoes in in, in the beginning of the film to something more um, ethereal uh, at the end, so it matches the more the the uh, emotional arc of the movie, because uh, past the, the the half hour, all volcanoes are more uh, less precise and more ethereal, more uh, more emotional sounding, if, if it means anything, you know. So yeah, yeah. Just one thing with that, um, it was it's interesting because the the, the killer volcanoes are the gray volcanoes. And yeah. you tend to see them, you, you, nobody's ever, or few people are ever around for the actual eruptions of them or get it captured. A lot of it is happens with just smoke and billowing. And, and so there were, there was Patrice and, and, and sorry, Sarah's guidance was really great in, in making them ominous, even though we didn't have the explosions because the red volcanoes, which are the, the, the more flamboyant volcanoes, if you may, uh, you're throwing in all the yeah. explosions and rocks falling and, and it's easy to make it dynamic and, and, and scary. Yet those are the ones that aren't as dangerous as the other ones. So it's great how the movie takes a turn when the, both Katja and Morris start going into uh, studying the, the gray volcanoes that all of a sudden it becomes this more ominous thing. And I think the Petrus and his sound team did a great job of giving us tracks that gave us that danger and scary feeling to it without having visuals that were necessarily scary to look at. You're actually, you're reminding me too of something that, that was so powerful that you did, Gavin, um, with regards to, to the gray volcanoes. Uh, there, there's a scene, well, there's of course many, many things that you did, Gavin, but, but I'm going to call it one specific example as we're talking about the gray volcanoes. Um, there's a scene in, in Mount Augustine in Alaska in 1986 where Katya and Maurice are just transfixed by this deadly force that's rushing at them. And they describe it as almost silent. And of course, we needed to put some sounds in there to capture, you know, the, the, the magnitude of the scene. But Gavin concentrated the directionality. Um, I believe it was all in the center channels. Is that right? 
Um, and it created this feeling of this force really coming at you. And that was something that I remember when that happened, it, re- it just, it, it was kind of a tra- one of those transformative moments for, for understanding the power of the volcano and vis-a-vis our, our two humans. So there's so many things like that, that I feel so lucky that we had at our disposal. And that really, you know, speaks to the creativity of the wonderful team that I got to work with on this. So Sarah, I read that multiple scientists advised you uh, on the film, including uh, Clive Oppenheimer and Rebecca Williams. Did they give you any advice on sound for volcanoes? They did, yes. We, we were so lucky to work with those science advisors who had spent a ton of time in the field. Actually, both Clive and Rebecca are, are wonderful writers, and some of the writing has quite evocative notes about how volcanoes sound. Um, one of the things that was most notable to us as we were doing our research and having conversations about sound was, was the utter unpredictability of volcanoes and how that is expressed through sound. For example, a red volcano that is seemingly, you know, quote unquote, friendly in Katya and Reese's terms can be kind of hissing and moving somewhat slowly, kind of popping and sizzling. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's a huge boom somewhere in the distance that catches you off guard and kind of gives that total aliveness and sense of danger that at any moment something could happen, even when you think you know this, you know, magmatic beast. So uh, that was especially informative from a narrative perspective to always have that element of surprise and and that tension building um, and how that can be powerfully expressed through sound. And how did you communicate those ideas to the sound team? Like, did you guys uh, speak with the advisors at all? Or was that, how, how did that get down to you, Patrice? I just want to say that I would have mixed a whole different movie if I had heard the term magmatic beast before. <laughs> Sorry, Gavin. <laughs> what a great term. I think on my part, uh, the, uh, this information was passed to, uh, to Aaron and, uh, and uh, Jocelyn because... Um, the, they were the picture editors, yeah. right? Yeah, they were the and uh, the sound that they uh, they made uh, for the rough cut, the first cut, the ideas were there. So uh, I took the ball roll- rolling and uh, and went with it. And I think uh, I did the uh, first uh, a first edit on the first like fifteen minutes earlier in uh, in September, and we we started to work on the post in in November. But I did the first edit of the first 20 minutes earlier, uh, and I went with it. I They, they said, okay, you have two days to, for the Sundance edit. And uh, I think they were <laughs> happy with the work uh, and <laughs> that I did. It was, it was kind of a blind uh, uh, blind work because we, we haven't talked a lot uh, before that. I guess my sensibility was, uh, was, uh, was the same as uh, Sarah. So. Just- just yep. so you know, the timeline of that movie was how much was it advanced? Yeah. Sarah? It was like moved up by six months or four months. So exactly. what was supposed to be a summertime production and mixed ended up being crammed before Christmas, and we uh, Petrus had barely barely five weeks to to get the whole thing together. More like three weeks. More like. Three weeks. <laughs> it was yeah. a tremendous amount. It was such a heavy lift in a short amount of time. And, and so the, the quality of the work yeah. is like, I, I think that just makes it all the more exceptional um, of, of how great it was. But, but I think you're right, Patrice. You know, we started out with this. Uh, yeah. We had a few sections that we were going to design for our Sundance cut to, to really put our best foot forward. Um, that was our target for, for a deadline and, and for an ideal world premiere. Um, and it was a wonderful rehearsal of sorts to really be testing mm-hmm. out 
about uh, our sensibilities and ideas. And, and as Petri said, we found ourselves very much on, on the same page. And it was such a delight to get those initial scenes back and to be like, yes, this, this is exactly what we were hoping for. And that really kind of served as a first moment to establish kind of, um, yeah, kind of a shared language of, of how to communicate these ideas moving forward and how to go about making the sound design um, for the rest of the film on our extremely compressed <laughs> timeline. Uh- as a viewer of the film, it didn't feel like it had been rushed. It felt really uh, wonderful and, and it's playful at times, too. The other thing I really enjoyed about the soundtrack is uh, the way the music is mixed, Gavin. It's almost interacting with the characters. Uh, sometimes, like, there, there's a really great scene where we're listening to a piece of music and then we go underwater and see the lava uh, coming out underwater. And the music goes underwater, too, with us, even though it's not supposed to be... Uh, like actually present music at the score at that yeah. point. Yeah, yeah, non-diegetic, yeah. And then there's a moment where the music stops when they crack an egg on the frying pan. Like, there's really fun moments with the music. Was that all built in when you got it, or how, how did it you go about it? It was all that placement and decisions? even those ideas. That I mean, I think the the, the underwater was Joc- was Jocelyn and I think the, and and Aaron um, and Aaron and Jocelyn were very were, were present in the process more so than a lot of project productions I work on, uh, right to the last day of mix and even past that with 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 corrections that we're doing remotely. Um, I mean, I, I assume, Sarah, these are all choices you made, but they, they were adamant and there was stuff that got moved here. We went through multiple conforms. Um, another, another <laughs> we mixed this movie completely out of order. We mixed it four, two, one, three, five, as, as far as the real numbers go. Like, so we started close to the end and then we came back to the beginning and it was really quite a strange Processed, but it was happening just because the timeline had been the, the mix timeline had been compressed so much, and so we took what was ready, or if, if there was music that was coming in. Um, but those choices, those were editorial choices that they had started with, and we didn't play like the first time I went through the uh, with the underwater music, but the, the creeping lava underwater, I didn't, I didn't hadn't gone to that. Uh, I just played it played out the way it was playing out. And they were like, no, let's do the underwater thing. And and we just split it off and did it. And so, and and they're all great, great moments, but I can't take credit for that. That was all the geniuses that that were at Sarah's house in the basement editing. But the execution, <laughs> the execution was all you. I'll take, yeah, I'll take credit. For, I'll take credit for the high pass filter, the low pass filter. Both That's are being it. so humble. It was, it was a wonderfully collaborative process the whole way through from working with our producers, our executive producers, all the way to, to the sound at the end. And if, I'm hopeful that that collaborative of uh, joy that can come with when you have like really wonderful relationships with, with your team is, is felt in the film. You know, Katya and Maurice were so collaborative. They did everything together in order to reach their beloved volcanoes. And and I don't know, I, I like to think that some of the way that they worked kind of filtered in, into our process, whether it was, you know, the incredibly long hours and hard work that Patrice and Gavin put in to making this film and finding the crazy puzzle piece of a schedule to make it happen um, or, you know, how we all worked with stuff that Aaron and Jocelyn had, had put in early on and to enhance and inflect and change and develop through, um, you know, the post sound too. So just really want to shout out how wonderfully collaborative and fun uh, that process was. It was it was really fun. And, and we had COVID looming over our heads yeah. with, with Omicron and it was daily testing and we our final playback. Two people flew into, flew into Montreal uh, the first week of January. 
never got to see the movie and flew out of Montreal. Like they were in quarantine in Montreal for four days and watched it remotely on a on a on a uh, an internet link, and that was their playback. And they'd literally flown here for that, and fl- and it was a shame. It was just a- so sad. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a bummer. Okay, I have just one last question for you. It's uh, not the most uh, dramatic question, but uh, it's something that all sound people will be able to relate to. The ending of the film, uh, as we go towards the the end of the footage you get from the main characters, we transition from film to videotape. I have had some experience trying to use sound from video in the early 90s, and it was a nightmare. Uh, how, how was the sound on those uh, early 90s videos? Patricia, you, you'd done first pass of restoration. Yeah... It was all right. The the thing it was all right. It, okay. Yeah. No, the, the, <laughs> the thing is that uh, the, you, you're talking about the sequence in Japan. Uh, well, just yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Any yeah. any of the video as opposed to film stuff. Yeah. yeah. The, the 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 thing that was weird because I worked the sound on the final edit, but after uh, our first week of mixing when we came back to uh, after after christmas uh we got news that uh, most of these images uh we didn't have the rights so i had to sync other sound <laughs> to a new images uh, so that was done in a rush but uh, it kind of felt right for the 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 image the it's really rough uh, rough feeling images, so the sound was really rough too. So it was, it, it worked and, fine. And I think yeah. we we owned it too. The stuff that was archival, we even added yeah. in like almost like you know magnetophone sort of a uh, hums and yeah. buzzes and a bit of hiss and stuff. So yeah, we didn't have to make it pristine and make it sound like it's a 2022 recording. Um, yep. you know, which I got to tell you, field recording is not progressed all that much for some things. We've got more tracks, but there's there's still if you're in a hostile environment, you're in a hostile environment. Um, and so uh, we 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 owned it. We we didn't we, we didn't make, try and make it to something it wasn't. So once with Patrice's, uh, you know, work use of RX uh, to to get it to a first pass, then we saw. So what well, what's the feeling for this? And if we we're playing it, a lot of the a lot of that archival stuff plays mono in the center. Um, and we even the, the even the ambiences would would filter down or, or get panned collapsed down to the towards the middle so that when we did need to go big and on the sides we could go big on the sides with other stuff when we're in the jungle without the archival footage and all so so the stuff but when they're talking it's pretty I think you added some foley for a lot of that stuff too right yeah yeah and uh, the it was set up in the first reel too, because we see them at the beginning, and so um, if it works in the beginning, it would work in the end. So <laughs> we also had like two or three places where they stop the playback of the video narratively. Sarah had done that, and so you know, it's like this will be the last picture we see of Katja and Morris or something like that, and so. It, it is. It, it even enhances the fact that we're playing a hum and a buzz and click that that are stopping this action. It's like okay, we're no longer listening to the archive. So we had these points where it was it was already sort of written into the soundscape, but but as just by the way Sarah told the story. So Sarah, uh, 
we often have sound people on this show. We don't always have directors, so it's great to have you here. Sound people are always talking about what they learned from the directors. So I was wondering if we could take this opportunity to maybe say something that you learned from the sound team on, that you'll take forward on your next project. Wow. Um, there's so many things I, I learned from Patrice and, and Gavin. It's, it's going to be hard to, to summarize. I, I think one of the things, it, first, I just want to say, like, the, it was a true delight. Like, when I immediately think about the process, it immediately was one of my absolute favorite times and working on this film. And this was a film full of joy, but getting to finish the process with, with these two, um, just, I can't help but smile. Um, so I think one just lesson is, is just <laughs> how important it is to find your people um, who you can form the shared language with, who are wonderful listeners and also have, you know, wonderful ideas that they bring to the table too. Um, I feel like we established a great collaboration in that sense. And I, I think in terms of kind of the artistry of sound design, um, I had never worked, actually. I had done 5-1 mixes before, but I feel like the way um, that we were thinking creatively about directionality, for example, um, as well as the, the narration um, with Gavin, really taught me so much about uh, where to put um, the audience's attention, how to bring out just the, again, I, I keep coming back to the word life force. Like, I feel like like sound imbued a life force in, into the volcano in, in such a powerful way and getting to play with directionality in, in that sense. Um, it was truly incredible. And with Patrice, like the utter delicacy of some of the sounds, like I feel like there was such a, a love and a precision that went into every single thing. And, you know, we have sometimes have questions of like, oh, what is this one thing we're hearing? And Patrice would know exactly what it was. And, and I was like astounded by that encyclopedic knowledge of the design. So I, I feel like working with Patrice and Gavin expanded the possibilities from the utter, like the, the molecular details to, to the expansiveness of, of direction and, you know, directionality. Um, yeah, it's, it's made me feel like so much more is possible. I think it really taught me that sound is utter magic, <laughs> you know, and, and I think the best kind of magic, like those who know how to wield magic, know, know um, the minutiae of it all so fluently that it seems like magic to others. Um, and but for me, it felt like a real magic. And that was what was needed for a film that I think is ultimately about magic and mystery of our planet. Um, anyways, I'm going on and on and on. I could talk about these two forever, <laughs> um, but it's, it's a real joy to, to get to have a moment in a specific form to talk about sound. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop my, my rambling there. <laughs> that was awesome. I, I love the magic part. Thank you very much for talking with us today. Uh, I really enjoyed the film and I hope people seek it out now that it'll be uh, easier to find on Disney+. Plus. I was lucky enough to get to see it in a theater. Just quickly, I was listening to another podcast, a movie review podcast, and they had an episode uh, saying, this was back in July or August, saying, you know, what their favorite movies of the year were that at that point. And Fire of Love was one of their uh, number ones. So uh, I literally went out that night to see it because I didn't know about it at that point. And uh, I was super glad I enjoyed it. And uh, it's a wonderful film. So everybody out there, uh, go find it and uh, enjoy it yourself. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Thank for you. Thanks for making this happen. Thanks so much. Awesome. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Tim. I love that part near the end where Sarah talks about the sound design process as being magic. Thanks to Patrice, Gavin, and Sarah for that great interview. As mentioned off the top, this is the first in a mini-series we will be doing about sound design for documentaries, featuring both the directors and the sound teams. The other two will be coming out in the next month or so and are equally great. Stay tuned next week as we have a really interesting roundtable talk coming your way about the delicate art of doing sound for movie musicals. The panelists on this one are all the best. I can't wait for you to hear it. 
A big thanks to Carlos San Juan for volunteer editing this episode. It was a technically tough edit, and you cannot really tell because he did such a good job. Carlos is a versatile sound designer, a National Film and Television School alumnus, and is always keen for a unique sonic adventure. You can contact him through his website, carlos-sanjuan.com. Thanks, Carlos. For his exceptional efforts on this episode, Carlos will be getting a copy of the amazing sound library, Sonic Springs, from Katrina Emsler. This is a fantastic sound library that everyone should look into getting for themselves. You can find a link on this episode's page at ToneMendersPodcast.com. My name is Tim Muirhead. Thanks for listening to ToneMender Sound Design Podcast. Catch you next week. ToneBenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. Are you looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? Tonebenders is part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.